Welcome to the Reasonable Theology Podcast, where we present sound doctrine in plain language. We're here to help you better understand, articulate, and live out the fullness of the Christian faith. And now, here's your host, Clay Craby. Well, thanks for joining us. We are talking with Sean McDowell again, and he's an author, he's a speaker, he's actually an associate professor at Talbot School of Theology, and that's at Biola University. He's authored and he's edited more than 18 books, including So the Next Generation Will Know. We actually had a chance to talk with Sean on the podcast back when that came out. I think that was episode 16. We'll link to that so you can check it out. His latest book, though, is A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and Love Amid the Noise of Today's World. You can learn more about Sean's ministry and his writing and everything else at his website, seanmcdowell.org. Sean, thanks so much for joining me again. Honored to be back. Thanks for having me. Now, to begin with, I think most people that will be listening and watching are, are familiar with some of your ministry, particularly on the apologetic side, but could you share a little bit about yourself and your ministry and what that looks like? Sure. Uh, first and foremost, obviously, I'm a Christian. After that, I am a husband and a father. I've been married to my high school sweetheart 22 years. I have three kids, a son who's just graduated from high school, a daughter who's 15, and a son who's nine, wrapping up third grade. And like you said, teach at Biola and get to speak, just do a ton on social media that I actually really enjoy, for the most part, and uh, get to write write books. So I'm really a communicator at heart. People can check you out, obviously, at your website. They can see you on YouTube. I mean, you're, you're really kind of in all the different places someone might want to connect and, and learn about what you are teaching people about Scripture and about uh, theology and about apologetics and all those things, right? Well, there's a strategy behind that because I've been silenced on TikTok, and I literally made an argument that life begins at conception and was told – it was pulled down and told that was hate speech, interestingly enough – uh, I haven't been blocked on YouTube, but demonetized in a couple. So I think a wise strategy is to not put yeah. all your eggs in one basket, to use different platforms. That's a part of why I use so many different platforms. No, it makes sense. I think uh, for anybody, but particularly Christian uh, you know, teachers and communicators and pastors and theologians, you have to remember we'll, we're building a house on rented land. So uh, mm. you gotta you got to expect that someday the rug might get pulled out from under you. So. Good strategy. Now, as we mentioned, your latest book is A Rebel's Manifesto, and you're really making the case that in order to be a rebel in today's world, that means to stand up for biblical truth. So if you think of someone who, oh, I'm a rebel, and you're you know, thinking of maybe like a 1960s kind of culture where they're, they're pushing back against traditional values and, and what Scripture has to say in the church and really any organizational authority, it's pretty much the opposite today. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, uh, one of the things that people who maybe are familiar with me and my work, if they hear the term rebel, probably are not going to think of me. They're not going to go, yeah, Sean, that guy's just a rebel. Partly that's because I think we have an antiquated understanding of what it means to be a rebel. So you can understand a rebel through the history of rock music. I was reading a professional journal article about this recently, and they talked about how some rock music in the 50s was pushing back against racial injustice in the 60s against the family, against, you know, kind of the establishment at that time. In the 70s against war. In the 80s, you have punk rock. The history of rock and roll is kind of the history of being a contrarian against fighting for what was injustices or in some cases perceived to be injustices. Well, it's interesting to ask the question, 
what does it mean to be a contrarian today? Because everybody is fighting against something. Everybody now, because of these things called smartphones and social media, has a platform to speak. And so much of our, uh, just the tone of our conversation is this angry, vitriolic, cancel somebody who doesn't see the world as I do. So given that now everybody has the tone of rock music, and that's not an insult. I love rock music. That's not the point. But everybody can fight against the system. Right. What does it actually mean to be a contrarian? And I would say it's actually somebody who says, you know what? I'm going to lead with understanding. I'm going to try to be charitable. I'm going to build bridges instead of walls. I want to reach across the aisle in terms of religion and politically and socially and just try to stand for truth and not compromise, but do that in a way that's gracious and humanizing and non-tribalistic. That's actually a rebel today. There's not a lot of people doing that. Now, we see some of that in the life of Jesus, that he was uncompromisingly committed to truth. He died for it, but he also dined with sinners. He also talked about charity. He talked about judging yourself before you judge others. There's a lot in the example of Jesus, who in some ways is the ultimate rebel that we've lost in our culture today. That's what I'm calling Christians in particular, too. Yeah, and it really is just that cultural shift. So if you imagine someone, particularly the younger generation, whether college or younger, and I think the mindset is often that, that we're, we're rebels and we're, we're sticking it to the man and we're up against authority. And, but then if you can get them to stop and realize you agree with all of your teachers, every celebrity, <laughs> every music group, every social media platform, every corporate, like who are you rebelling against when, when the ideology has shifted so much that, that they're in agreement with all the authority figures, which is what you typically think of when someone is rebellious. But now – I think you make a great case here in this book. Exactly what you said is, is if you are kind, loving, stand firm for truth, particularly as we're talking about biblical truth, that is extremely countercultural right now, isn't it? There was this Babylon Bee post, I don't know how many weeks ago, and they described how, you know, I think it was a teenage girl comes out as pansexual. And they didn't use this word, but in rebellion against the system, like all her friends did. Yeah. <laughs> and I just laughed. I'm like, wait a minute. This is what everybody's doing. And I tell students all the time, I'm like, you're actually just going with the script of what the media and what the culture tells you. And you think you're rebelling, but you're really not. It's right. actually rebellious today. Like you said, just say, you know what? I'm going to actually be gracious towards you. I'm going to try to understand you. I had a conversation on my YouTube channel recently with – he, he described himself this way, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, is an, a New York atheist media elite. He writes for The New Yorker, MSNBC, Slate Magazine. Basically on every social and political issue, we are probably on the opposite side. Right. But he reached out to me, super gracious, super thoughtful, and we just had a conversation, and it was so – interesting clay one of the things he said to me he said you know so many times i feel like the christian community just hates us and they're against us now why would they care about the message we stand for in the love of jesus if they're not feeling that from christians 
So I'm not telling Christians to fight less for life or the natural family or against racial injustice. We should care about all of those things. I'm concerned with the approach and the strategy we take in doing it. So often that approach doesn't reflect the love of Christ. And this atheist said to me, he goes, you know, he goes, it's interesting that you have these conversations with people. I've had LGBTQ activists on my show and agnostics and other atheists. He said, the fact that you're just willing to have this conversation and listen tells me you're confident in your position. Isn't that interesting? It's a willingness to listen and understand first shows confidence that we're not threatened by other ideas. But the reality is, Clay, you and I both know this. We could build bigger platforms if we took the shock and awe and insult and demonize and cancel approach. I could make a ton more money, a bigger platform. And you know what's so interesting is somebody criticized my atheist friend who's a, who writes for The New Yorker. And they're like, why are you platforming McDowell? And on Twitter, he defended me, which surprised me. I'm like, I have this atheist media elite defending me. I didn't expect that. And he said, if, if Sean was about money, he would be doing a shock and awe and attack approach. But he's not. And I thought, wow, that's a different tone, especially yeah. when I read things like First Peter written to Christians who are experiencing a hostile culture. He's like, love your neighbor, do good, live quiet lives, judge ourselves and success by a different metric of the world. That's actually in part what it means to be a rebel. Yeah. If you enjoy the sermons and written works of C.H. Spurgeon, I encourage you to check out the all-new chspurgeon.com. Here you'll find free, unabridged sermon audio delivered with the dynamic of live preaching, articles written by and about the Prince of Preachers, a chronological bibliography of all his books, and much more. This will be a growing library of Spurgeon-related resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. So check it out at chspurgeon.com. And, and to be clear for the folks that you know haven't had a, the the opportunity to, to look at the book yet, you're not calling Christians to to match the other worldviewed side in terms of vitriol and anger and and all caps tweets and all those things. You're you're calling people to stand firm in biblical truth and in all of those things, which by nature is countercultural and, and rebellious, but to do so in a way that is is kind and gracious and patient and loving. And I I'm afraid that some some Christians, particularly in the social media world, aren't maybe seeing the value mm. in that. I, I think they rightly recognize the danger that exists in a culture that's increasingly hostile towards God and his people, but they're responding with the exact same methodology uh, and, and the exact same demeanor that is itself inappropriate and not honoring to God. And, and that's a huge problem, yeah. I think, these days. So what I'm not saying is that there's no place for satire. I think there is. I'm not saying we don't need a prophetic, bold voice. We need that. Right. But I'm saying what we need more of is a revolutionary, grace-filled, 
kind kind of communication. So I'll just give an example of this. When there was the shooting at the church in the South a while ago, a black church, honestly, I just get goosebumps thinking about this. One by one, I don't remember how many people were shot. I mean, just harrowing to go into a church. One by one, many of the members of this church just said, you know what? Jesus loves you. And we hope you will repent from your sins because we forgive you and God is willing to forgive you as well. Holy cow. Right. That is a revolutionary type of action that tells me they have a kingdom focus. It would be understandable if they stood there and just spewed vitriol at him and attacked him like in social media and caps. All of us would be like, yeah, we get it. But they understood that God had forgiven them and they have a higher calling to show to the world what it means to be forgiven and love others. When I see stuff like that, Clay, I'm humbled by the example of, you know, these people in this black church in the South, thousands of miles away from where I live they take seriously amidst unspeakable and unimaginable tragedy to show a kindness and grace to the world. That's what our world who's so quick to cancel for the slightest indiscretion somebody wrote on a paper in college two decades ago. This kind of action where we kind of say, yeah, you're justified in canceling this guy. They don't. That voice is powerful and I wish the church was more marked by that kindness than it is sadly in the eyes of many today yeah and and the unbelieving world sees that you see articles and and you know secular commentators and you know all over social media when those things happen it, it is a shock to the system to see mm. someone show grace and kindness and it and it's kind of the worse the situation, the more shocking it is when someone does say, you know what, I forgive this person and I, I, I want them I want them to know Jesus. I want them to know forgiveness. I offer my, that's a shock to the system. And, and the unbelieving world takes notice of those things and what a testimony that is to, to the gospel. You know, there was a cover story of U.S. News and World Report. This might be God, 10, 12, maybe 15 years ago when this uh, shooter went into a schoolhouse and killed some uh, just uh, Amish children. And oh, yeah. what was amazing is the Amish community, because they believe in the sovereignty of God, was not only reached out in love to the wife of the killer and showed grace to her, and if I remember correctly, donated a lot of the money that had been given to their community to help the wife and other causes rather wow. than take it themselves. I just remember it's been so long. This U.S. News & World Report was like stunned and surprised and taken back that a community could lead with such love and forgiveness. It's like our culture doesn't get that. It's counterintuitive. That's what gets people's attention for the gospel. How do we step outside of this angry cancel culture and show love to people? The only way we do that is if we have a different end game than our culture does. Yeah. Andy Stanley has a recent book. It's called Not In It to Win It. And he's like, usually we're in this to win politics, get social media followers. Like we play by the wrong metric and the wrong guide. I think if we would remember that it's about building the kingdom of God, 
loving our neighbors first and foremost, love God, love our neighbor, I just think we would react very differently and carry ourselves very differently on social media, in the world. And again, I'm not saying there's not a prophetic voice. There's a lot of things that make us angry. And I speak out many times on life. I'm amazed how callous people are. And we need to speak boldly on it. But gosh, it's your kindness that leads to repentance, says Paul in Romans 2. And uh, in Proverbs, it says, a soft word breaks a bone. That voice we need to have more and more of today. Yeah, because you are you are not saying that. Hey, be ni- just be nice, and and that's the other I think ditch that Christians fall into is is just be kind, be polite, be nice, be a good neighbor. That's the apex of Christianity. You're saying have these conversations. So your book, you have chapters on uh, abortion, racial tension, transgenderism, uh, even artificial intelligence, drugs. We should have these conversations. Why is it important that Christians don't just sit on the sidelines and not enter into these difficult, controversial topics? Well, one, my concern actually primarily is for the church, that we are the bride of Christ and that we pass on our faith to the next generation. So all the studies show, Clay, I've been studying and tracking this since the 70s, all the studies I've found. And Christian Smith, sociologist, backs this up as well, is that the primary influence on the life of a young person is the relationship with the parents, their example, the relationship, and beliefs are passed down through relationships in meaningful conversation with parents. So it's not Netflix, it's not TikTok, it's not the educational system that are the primary influence. It's actually primarily the parents. So... A book like Rebels Manifesto is just a tool for parents to talk with their kids in relationship because when we don't intentionally pass on our faith, then our kids will unintentionally or unconsciously adopt the ideas of the world that we live in. So given that all these ideas, my kids are on TikTok and all these videos are coming up all the time with ideas how to think about this or Instagram or Netflix. We've got to give them a Christian funnel to approach this so they can stay in the faith and live out their faith boldly. That's number one. But number two is Christianity is an all-encompassing worldview. When it's so interesting, and I think it's Matthew 22, where Jesus, you know, the, the coin, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And the response is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God's what is God. He's like, whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. Give it to Caesar. Well, a lot of people miss the larger question. If that coin has Caesar's image on it, where is God's image? God's image is on all of us. So Caesar may have a realm, but that is underneath the larger umbrella of God's realm. So we need to think Christianly about everything. And some of my non-Christian friends would not agree with this which is fine. They might be unhappy that I'm saying it, but it's actually, if Christianity is true, then it is for the good and love of our neighbor that we think Christianly about these ideas and apply larger Christian principles. I'm not saying a theocracy. That's absolutely not what I'm arguing for. But basic Christian principles, like all life has value. Every human being has dignity ideas of justice, ideas of loving our neighbor. These are Christian ideas. 
even care for creation is a Christian idea. So I actually think we should engage in these ideas to love our neighbors. We just have to do it in a way that actually represents scripture and in a manner that's loving towards our neighbors. And I was a please, you know, I, I got a, a copy of this to, to look at ahead of our conversation. Of course, I, I flip to the most controversial chapters to make sure you haven't you know, gone off the rails, which I'm ah. pleased to see. Uh, you, you never know these days. People put out books I and know. after like their fourth book, they just, they, a, a switch flips in their mind and they go down weird paths. But um, you, you don't shy away from giving, you know, biblical truth, standing on, on things that are not popular, increasingly unpopular in our culture. And, and I think that's so important for Christians to recognize that you have to have a, a priority given to the authority of, of God's word. So how much does our view of Scripture impact the way we approach these issues, the way we think through these issues, and the way we decide to speak, not to speak, how to speak about these issues? Well, it's two things. At the heart of it is the question of biblical authority. Do we really think the Bible is authoritative? So am I going to try to change my opinions and views and values to what Scripture says or scriptural values to my experience or culture or something else? Now, the word progressive Christianity is very fluid and can represent a lot of different people. But many progressive Christians take their experience, take a cultural value, and find scriptures to support it. Now, by the way, there's a lot of conservatives that do this as well on different issues. So we could talk about that as well. But I think there's a lack of biblical authority within the progressive Christian movement that concerns me. So the first question is, do we try to live according to the scriptures, believe that they're inspired, hold them up as authoritative? Second is, how do we interpret the scriptures? And I found a lot of Christians on the left and the right don't know how to read the scriptures within context. We don't know how to take genre into consideration. We don't know how to separate what is cultural versus what is historical. Rather, we approach the scriptures and find passages that support the political position that we want rather than letting scripture speak to us. So the hard thing about writing this book is like, I think there's some things the scripture's very clear on. Scripture's very clear from Genesis to Revelation that marriage is intended to be one man, one woman, who become one flesh for one lifetime. And that any sexual activity outside of that is wrong. I can't tell you how many hundreds of hours I spent studying this, and scripture's clear on that. But when it comes to gun control, it's not as black and white when it comes to that. Of course, the Bible doesn't address gun control, but it gives principles we can apply to it. Climate change. Right? The Bible doesn't talk explicitly about climate change, but it talks about creation care. So how do we approach these through a biblical lens while staying faithful on the core issues, but showing charity to Christians who maybe have a different view of gun control? That's a difficult topic. And I want to say a couple things. Number one, we have to stay faithful to Scripture. We have to make sure we're dying on the right issues. I see a lot of Christians dying on secondary issues. And then when we differ on important issues, 
we've got to try to do it in a way with other believers that doesn't sacrifice unity and shows charity to fellow believers. And I just don't see a lot of Christians being as thoughtful about that as I'm trying to encourage Christians to do in a Rebels Manifesto. Right. I think that is so that's that's where we need to land. We need to have the authority of Scripture first and foremost, because otherwise, like you mentioned, we're just floating in the wind by our feelings and our ideas and our opinions. And so we need to Mm -hmm. stand firm in that. We need to be willing to defend that. Uh, But at the same time, recognize that it can be difficult to discern always clearly black and white what what is the right answer on this? So you mentioned some of those examples. Uh, you, you search all day for artificial intelligence in, in your in your Bibles. You're not going to find that phrase or really right. anything akin to it. Uh, but we're we're tasked with navigating a culture that has some pretty interesting um, developments. I, just articles that are going around right now about people basically having virtual reality babies instead of kids. Now, I don't have to flip through my Bible to tell you that ain't going to work out well, but there's there's odd things like that that, that you have to navigate in life. There's things where you have to uh, weigh what, what the Bible does say about a particular topic and see, okay, how does that apply in this somewhat parallel situation? But if you don't have scripture as an authority above your own thoughts, your own ideas, that all just goes by the wayside. So it's so important to maintain that, be willing to to take a stand for scripture. But <laughs> scripture also says when we do that, we need to do so in a winsome, uh, kind, loving fashion. So I really think that uh, what you've attempted to do with this book, I really see that come out in the individual chapters of saying, no, this is wrong, or this is right, or this is confusing, depending on which chapter it's talking about, giving some principles from Scripture for people to consider, and and really kind of ending each one on that encouragement on how do you approach this conversation and not be a jerk? Uh, <laughs> I think that's so important for all of us to remember. Well, I, I appreciate the way you framed this. You said what I've attempted to do in the book, and I completely accept that because this book is not meant to be the end-all of how Christians think about politics, the end-all of how we approach gun control. These are four to five page short chapters, but what they are is if, if you're picking up this book saying, well, Sean's going to tell me why as a Christian I need to be a Democrat or Republican, you're going to be disappointed. Right. But if you want to pick this up and say, what does the Bible say that intersects with the question of politics? What are the worldview issues at play when we vote? What are some mistakes to make when we approach politics, such as uh, putting our faith in a political candidate instead of Christ, uh, believing that there's a political solution to something when at its core it's a spiritual or a moral problem. Uh, if you're looking for principles how to approach and think about politics, this is the book for you. But the problem is most people just want to tribalize. They want to read something that tells them what to believe rather than be asked questions and driven back to scripture to think what it means. I mean, I just, I was doing my atheist role play recently and this girl asked a question and she said, are you Mr. Atheist? No, and I was role playing, willing to change your mind if we could prove that the 
Bible's true. I said, sure, I'll follow truth. I said, would you change your mind if I could show that your views are wrong? She goes, no, I'm right. I got it all figured out. And I said, you're 18 years old and you're not even open to possibly being wrong, but you expect me to take a posture that I could be wrong. I said, how is that fair? Now, she's 18 years old, so she's figuring things out like I have grace for that. But that's oftentimes our posture towards a non-believing world. They're looking at us saying, you've got it all figured out, and you expect us to be open, but you're not. Why should we engage you in conversation? These are the kinds of things I'm just pushing back on Christians. So I open with the story of Daniel, who stood boldly for truth and was willing to die for it. But with the king in Daniel chapter 1, he's like, I'm going to come up with a creative way to try to get the king what he wants. It really wasn't about the food. With a way that honors my conscience before the Lord. That's a brilliant model for Christians today that says we've got to be faithful to what Scripture says and not compromise. Be willing to die on the right hills, but use wisdom as we interact, engage in the wider culture. I just don't see a lot of Christians doing that. Yeah. And you, your part of your subtitle is about how you're, you're choosing truth and real justice and love amid the noise of today's world. And it seems like you, you can be an all-around great guy. You can nail all of these conversations perfectly biblically, perfectly correct, just the wisdom of Solomon, uh, but it is a noisy world. And for every sane, biblical, you know, balanced voice out there, there's 10,000 people just screaming at each other. So it seems like the deck is stacked against particularly young people uh, with, with these issues. So what can what? families do? What can parents do to really set them up to, to succeed and to navigate all these challenges that they're facing? First and perhaps the most important thing parents could do, if they could only do one thing, is to build loving, meaningful relationships with their kids. Studies show, and again, this is a study from Vern, ba Vern Bankston in his Oxford University Press book. I think it was about 2013 if it came out, so a few years ago. But it was based on 35 years, 3,500 people, four generations of faith transmission. And in his book, Faith and Families, he says the number one statistical factor in faith transmission is a, quote, warm relationship with the father. Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean the mother's unimportant. The reality is the father tends to be more of a wild card. But if you care about passing on the faith with your kids, you've got to build a relationship with your kids. My dad said to me, it's one of the best things I think he's ever said. He said, rules without relationships leads to rebellion. Rules without relationships leads to rebellion. So step one is build a relationship with your kids. Number two, take a hard look inside and ask yourself, how am I living my life? Is my life captivating? Do my kids want the kind of life that I have? Do I prioritize money, my profession, something else over the kingdom of God? Then guess what? Our kids are going to listen to what we do, not what we say. 
So build a relationship with our kids, look in the mirror first, and then third, just have intentional conversations with kids. I do this with my kids all the time about movies. I'll, I'll, look, I'll give you a couple examples. When the movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out a few years ago, my son was like, I think he was 13 or 14, and it was PG-13, so I was a little concerned, looked into it, and I was like, I'll take my son. He was really interested in it. I said, buddy, I'll take you and a friend. I'll pay for everything. If when we're done, we just come back and talk about it. I just want to know what you think. We go to the movie, come back, sit down at the dinner table, probably a half an hour, and we just talked about it. Hey, what would you enjoy? As Christians, what can we affirm? Are there any things in the movie that gave you pause you felt you were being preached at? We just talked about it. That's how you pass on a faith to kids. My last book, not this one, I gave to my daughter, but it's the same 30 chapters on a cultural issue that was on sexuality. I told my daughter, who's now 15, I said, if you read this and just give me feedback and go to coffee with me and we talk about it, I'll buy you a pair of shoes. And uh, in my family, we like shoes, maybe too much. And she goes, Dad, there's a outlet down the mall. I can get two for the price of one. I was like, you can get three for the price of one. So she reads the book. We went to coffee, I don't know, hour, hour and a half. And I just asked her, hey, what was your favorite chapter? Did you learn anything different about your dad? Is there anything you differed with me on? What do you think about this chapter? How far do you think is too far? And my daughter and I had this conversation, went and bought her, I don't know, a pair of Vans and maybe a pair of Converse. I don't even remember. The point is build relationships with your kids model in your life and intentionally have meaningful spiritual conversations with your kids and statistically you put yourself in the best position to pass on your faith to them really really helpful guidance on on how we can go about doing that it's uh, not easy but it's not overly complicated uh you know <laughs> that the way in which that we go about those things and uh Shocker of all shockers, uh, read the Bible with your kids, pray with them, take them to church, you know, build relationships, loving relationships. You know, it's almost like those things were written for us a long, long time ago, and we just have to be faithful in doing them. So there's there's the possibility and, and really the likelihood of facing extreme pressure for going against the grain of the culture. One of the things I've seen a lot, I even saw... Uh, someone who is politically adjacent. I can't remember if they were in the current administration or just a commentator or whatever, but they were saying how, uh, hey, faith is great. Religious views are great, and they should be kept uh, in the heart, in the home, and in the pews. How would you respond to that view of, hey, Christian, be Christian all you want, just don't do it publicly? And I think that gets thrown at us a lot when we get into these controversial, uh, contested topics. I guess I would ask a few questions. I would say, do you have beliefs about the nature of the universe? Sure. Do they inform the way that you live? Of course. Well, if you have views about the nature of the universe and they inform how you vote and how you live your life, then why doesn't the same charity apply to me? I have views about the nature of the universe and I'm not trying to force people to follow the Bible. I make secular arguments when it comes to the political realm, such as marriage. I don't say, well, Genesis says this, therefore it should be in the law. I actually make an argument from natural law when making a case for marriage. But if all of us have a worldview... Why is it that those who are secular get to bring their worldview to the table, but those who are Christian don't? 
that doesn't strike me as open-minded. I was having a conversation with a guy who's an atheist, and he goes, look, we're not in favor of keeping religion out of, you know, the. we're not trying to just make the secular voice the only one. And then five minutes later, he's like, when it comes to marriage, it must be the secular voice. Everybody else needs to be silent. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you are enforcing a secular idea. The state can't be neutral on marriage. The state can't be neutral on life. So bottom line, I want everybody to see that we all have worldview considerations and we all bring them to the table. That should be true for an atheist. That can be true for a Muslim. And that can be true for a Christian. But we're also going to, I would push back to Christians and say, if you want your beliefs to be taken seriously, you're going to actually have to make an extra biblical argument from natural law for life, uh, for how you approach the environment, for how you approach marriage, etc. So bottom line is everybody has worldview commitments and can bring them to the table, but we're all going to have to make arguments apart from a religious text to convince our neighbors that this policy is good. So it bothers me when some people say an abortion, well, keep your religious ideas to yourself, keep religion out of this. Well, first off, they never define what's meant by religion. The Ninth Circuit Court years ago actually argued that, that atheism or secular humanism can be a kind of a religion, which is an interesting argument to go down. But second, this is a way of dismissing pro-life arguments that don't take our philosophical and scientific case seriously. No, that that's really helpful. I, I didn't think I'd stump you with that question. You, you really helped <laughs> me as you kind of navigate through that 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 kind of mentality of no, you just sit over there and and don't don't bring your worldview to the conversation. Don't bring your you know your background, your belief, your faith. But I'm going to do that. Uh, even if I if I deny that that's what's going on, so we we certainly should be in these conversations. And the fact of the matter is, if if they're not just um, you know bowing to the culture that says, oh, don't have an opinion, some people might not interject into these conversations out of just fear, you know, not yeah. um, maybe feeling uh, qualified to to really to navigate these issues well, or. They think that it just might get heated and terrible and, and maybe put a bad taste in the other person's mouth for Christianity. How can someone approach a conversation about abortion, uh, about gender issues, about, I mean, any number of, of hot topic, hot button topics? How can they be both bold and loving as they make these stand for truth? I got to tell you, the hardest topic for me to do this on is abortion. Because what is at stake? And I right. found so many times when I speak with pro-choicers, they don't understand the pro-life side. They write it off. And for me, well, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to say, given that we're talk, what we're talking about here is a matter of life and death, how can you just make this argument and have not even taken seriously pro-life arguments? If you are wrong, you are supporting the direct, I don't know if I just use the word murder, but the direct ending the life of the most vulnerable segment of society around us. How can you not take the most strong arguments from the pro-life side and consider them? 
I've had that conversation with pro-choices a lot. And I've said, look, if you're right, I'd be pro-choice. Okay. So if I'm wrong, I prevented or been in favor of preventing a mom from getting an abortion. But if you're wrong, you've actually supported the ending of the life of tens of millions right. of the most vulnerable human beings amongst us. Are you willing to let that sink in? And have you taken seriously what's at stake if you're wrong? Now, some people say, what about gun control? And I say, yeah, that life and death is at play. This is very important. But nobody's saying you should be able to use guns intentionally to kill people. <laughs> like, right? Th that's it's it's you're comparing yeah, apples doesn't work, <laughs> and or, you're comparing apples and oranges. Nobody's saying you should destroy the environment. The question is, what policies best protect the environment? What policies protect life when it comes to gun control? When it comes to abortion, one side is saying a woman should be able to end this life and the other side is saying no every life matters and should be protected so a lot is at stake i want to get to the heart of the issue in my conversation with pro-choicers so i ask a lot of questions uh just strategically as i can uh second in this conversation i also make sure it's the right setting i'm not going to have this conversation at the thanksgiving dinner table I've made that mistake and it just doesn't go well. Like you've got to have the right setting for any conversation, especially something like this. But I also try to remember what my end game is. What's my end game? I just want to make this person think. I want to push back, be loving, but firm and challenge the ideas that they hold. So I can't say I perfectly do this. I get, I mean, I feel like I'm a pretty patient person and I'm pretty understanding. It's really hard for me to do this on abortion because I see so many pro-choicers who just adopt talking points right. and haven't considered the gravity of the issue at stake. And frankly, that's something I'm going to call people on because I think they need to take it seriously. Absolutely. And and even in doing that, you, you can be... Uh loving it might and the conversation might not go well but if if it's going to to get into an argument let's not have that be our fault let's not be the ones getting nasty mean personal but but be bold stand firm ask really hard questions point out mm. errors and thinking all of those things and and don't be afraid to to have those conversations we we we, not, we want to make sure that we're not backing down from those those cultural touch points that are so important for us to be speaking about our faith in just because those conversations might be hard or difficult or messy even. I think that's right. And we also have to be willing on tough issues like racial justice and racial injustice to follow the evidence where it leads, to admit if we have fallen short of holding a biblical view and approaching this in a gracious manner. So, a lot of this book is saying we got to speak boldly on issues. We also have to look in at our heart. We have to look in at our own worldview, look at how we treat people, and make sure we are in line with Scripture and that we are doing this ultimately in a way that's loving towards our neighbor. And love speaks the truth. So there's a time where we just let people know boldly where we differ from them 
and why. That's so. How you speak love is going to look differently on different topics. How you speak truth lovingly. I don't pretend I have that all dialed in. I make mistakes and delete tweets all the time. I'm like, yeah, that was an angry tweet. I'll delete it. All I'm calling people to say is, what is our end game? What's our goal? When it's right. all said and done. It's to love God, love other people. It's not about niceness, but it is about kindness. Speak truth boldly, but with a heart of love and compassion towards people. Yeah. Just approaching it that way helps solve a lot of the problems that I think we see in terms of the church communicating amongst each other and with the outside world. And and let's not forget perspective. They might not think it's loving. It, it's not That's to right. do whatever they think, oh, that was really loving and kind and, and warm, fuzzy conversation. They may think that you denied their existence or hated them or you know wanted them to just be erased from them. It's... It's recognizing that the most loving thing is to give them God's truth uh, in in a godly way, and and that's what we're called to do. Not make them feel like you love them because sometimes it it God willing they go back, they reflect, they think on it, and their minds are changed or they're influenced for for good in some way. They may never think that. They may hate your guts, um, but but we're not in control of that. And I think when we recognize that we're talking to an individual person. It's harder on the internet. It's messy on the internet. Twitter's not a great place for these conversations, no matter what. You can't even talk about Star Wars online and have that not get out of hand. Um, but if you recognize that, yes, there are you know militant, mean, angry atheists or secularists or far leftists or whatever, but you're probably not talking to that person. You're probably mm -hmm. talking to someone who's influenced by that person. So... Talk to people as individual people, have conversations, ask good questions, and and try to navigate because it's not unlikely they personally have not thought deeply about these things. Bottom line, when I get insulted on social media, which is pretty much daily or hourly if I would read all the comments, I just ask myself, I say, is it because I was a jerk? Is it because I was impatient? Is it because I was unkind? Or is it actually because of the position that I take? And if it's because right. of my attitude and approach, there's times I've taken tweets down, times I've apologized, then that's on me. But when people say you're a bigot because my view of marriage, I'm like, nah, I'm right. with Jesus on that one. That doesn't bother me because my view yeah. of whatever the issue is, let's just make sure that if people are angry with us, it's because of the right issue that we're on. Second, I also found so many times, Clay, when people are angry at me, it's not really me. It's not really the tweet. There's something deeper behind it. A bad experience with church, a bad experience with a Christian, uh, a disappointment with God. And that's driving it. And so there does come a point where people are so just vitriolic. I block them. I'm like, I don't have the emotional energy for this. Right. Like that. There's a point where I just do that because it's creating a caustic environment. But also I know, gosh, beneath this, there's a lot of hurt. So sometimes I just tweet back and I'm like, hey, you know what? I understand where you're coming from. And if I had that experience, I feel the same way. Thanks for weighing in. Just a kind word at times is unexpected and can make a greater difference. Yeah, that's a good word. Well, as we wrap up our conversation, what final encouragement would you give to someone 
to not only read the book, we'll get to that in a second, but but to be a rebel in today's world the way that you define being a rebel. The bottom line is just to go back to what Jesus taught. Ask yourself a question. What does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to love my neighbor? That's the question. So instead of taking cues from our wider culture and oftentimes from Christians about canceling others, demonizing others, building walls between tribalization, say, you know what? I'm going to be different. I'm going to try to show grace to people. I'm going to try to show kindness without compromising truth. That's the question I want people to wrestle with. And I think there's a lot of young people already who are tired of how divided our culture is on almost every issue and how divided the church is. We need voices who are going to die on the right issues, but show grace on the secondary issues. Be that kind of contrarian. Absolutely. Well, where can folks go to learn more about your ministry, follow you online, and pick up a copy of A Rebel's Manifesto? So if you just go to seanmcdowell.org, I've got links to all the different uh, buyers, whether it's the publisher, uh, Lifeway, or whether it's Amazon.com. I mean, you can pretty much find the book anywhere. But I'm all over Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, have a YouTube channel, try to use a lot of different mediums to get some of these ideas out there. Excellent. And we'll be sure to link to all that in the show notes. If you go mm. to reasonabletheology.org slash Sean, it'll take you right to the show notes for this conversation. We'll link out to copies of the book, other resources that were mentioned during the conversation. Sean McDowell has been our guest talking about his new book, A Rebel's Manifesto. Sean, I can't thank you enough for joining me again on the podcast. So thanks so much. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks for having me and for great questions. Thanks for listening to the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Be sure to visit reasonabletheology.org for more helpful resources on understanding, articulating, and living out the Christian faith. In addition to the show notes for this episode, you'll find articles, videos, book reviews, and much more. That's reasonabletheology.org. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode, and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting depicting a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I've found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.